Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Jeffrey Townsend, who is a professor of biostatistics and ecology and evolutionary biology at Yale School of Public Health at Yale University. He's an experimentalist and a theoretician, someone who performed the first experiments to show how extensively genome-wide gene expression varies in one individual organism to another within a population who has developed theory to reveal not just what is known, but what is unknown and unknowable in how organisms have dis- descended from their ancestors, who has pioneered both experimental and theoretical approaches, enabling us to understand the evolutionary changes that give an organism its form, function, and ability to survive and propagate. Currently, he spends the majority of his time working on evolutionary theory applied to tumor genome sequencing, revealing how cancer evolves from normal tissue to malignant tissue and how cancer evolves within us. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for the welcome, Gil. I'm excited to talk with you today. Yeah, yeah, thanks for doing this. So that, uh, that is fascinating research, and I think that is uh, something that you are deeply involved in now, uh, and that is um, using evolution, evolutionary theory um, to... Uh, to cancer research, and uh, this I, I believe it's uh, somatic mutations that occur uh, within the human body um, that maybe turns a good cell to a malignant cell over time. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. So what we've learned recently is that uh, there are many, many mutations that occur during our development as a human body. Uh, and that over time, you know, different parts of our body obtain additional mutations. And so we talk about a human genome as if any given person has a genome and has a certain set of mutations. But in fact, every person has a lot of different genomes, uh, depending on how their genomes have evolved over time. Um, and so one of the things that's really important to understand is how the evolution of that genome can happen in a way that goes astray 
and leads your cells to propagate and and uh, and survive in a way that is not healthy for the whole body. Right. Yeah. So that makes cancer even even scarier. You know, um, it, it, I used to think that you know every type of cancer is different, and hence finding a remedy for cancer uh, cannot be you know sort of uh, a drug that works for uh, for all sorts of cancers. Uh, but this is basically saying, if I understand this correctly, that every individual's cancer and the propagation uh, or really the uh, evolution of that cancer could be distinct for that individual. Am I understanding that correctly? That's absolutely right. So it is very daunting, uh, very challenging for us as researchers to try to understand how to address that issue. But let me just put a little bit of a positive spin on it, because the other side of that issue is that before cancer biologists used to look at every organ type of cancer as an individual different problem yeah. because every kind of organ has cancer differently. Now, while that's, that is partly true, it's also true that as we've understood better what changes happen, sometimes there are similarities between different cancers mm -hmm. where the same gene gets mutated in the same way in two cancer types. And suddenly that provides the opportunity to use a drug that targeted that gene in one cancer type for the same gene mutation seen in another cancer type. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes it. So if you think about this sort of a matrix, uh, you have different types of um, organs going on the X axis and different types of mutations going on the Y axis. Um, you could have similarities in any one of those cross sections. Yes, that's absolutely right. And what we've been doing in my lab is, so there's been a big effort in the past 10 years to basically fill in the matrix you just described. What are the mutations that lead to cancer in, uh, in head and neck cancer, in colon cancer, in uh, pancreatic cancer, in breast cancer, in every cancer that uh, humans suffer from? And we've done a pretty good job now of, under, of revealing what mutations do happen that lead to cancer. Uh, and one of the things that I've been really pushing hard recently in my research was to do more than just ask the question, which mutations are responsible, but to ask the question, which mutations are more responsible and which are less responsible. That is to quantify how much does each mutation actually affect the replication and survival of each lineage, because the ones that really affect it a lot are the ones that we should design drugs for. And the ones that affect it less, we should, you know, we should also design drugs for them, but we, our priority should be lower. Right. So it's not just a matter of whether it's a driver or not, as most people like to talk about. Yeah. It's really a matter of how much it drives that cancer to replicate and survive in the milieu of the body. Right. And so then there's a, there's a selection effect uh, as well, right? So, um, so, so what exactly happens? So you get a, is it a random mutation? And if it is, uh, if it is very potent and really in the bad direction, meaning in the malignant direction, um, it has a higher probability of getting selected and continued. That's yeah, yeah, that's actually that's right. So, so one of the things that I've been trying to point out very, um, very strongly in the work that I've been doing is that uh, these mutations. So, look, if you can think about it this way, traditionally uh, in the uh, evolution of cancer world, people have been very, very concerned in the medical field about the kinds of mutations that are introduced in the body. And it is very, very important, right? 
what, what, you know, do we introduce a mutation because of x-rays or do we, and then the thought was the mutation happens and then that's the problem, right? Yeah. But there's really two aspects to it. As you pointed out, there's the aspect of whether the mutation occurs. And then there's the aspect of, does that mutation confer sort of cancer? And a mutation, even if a mutation it causes a problem, so even if a mutation is in a location in the genome, which might cause cancer, it doesn't necessarily lead to cancer in every case. That cell might not survive and replicate. It might sort of replicate a little faster and then be killed off by the immune system. There's lots of ways they can die as well. Yeah. So there's a whole evolutionary process. That's the point that goes on after the mutation actually occurs. And so we need to quantify two things to sort of understand the evolutionary dynamics that lead to cancer. The first thing is, uh, how often do those mutations occur? And the second thing is, how often do those mutations go on to produce a cancer? And so what I've been doing is deconvolving those two things. And that's what hasn't been done so much previously. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. So, so these mutations, uh, are they impacted by the environment the individual is in? Um, in and if so, post-diagnosis, um, are there, you know, um, dietary uh, restrictions or environmental restrictions that might that might have a favorable outcome? Uh, the answer to both of those are yes. Uh, so first of all, let's talk a little bit about mutations and the environment. Uh, it turns out that um, some scientists who, these, these are not me, this is definitely other people, some brilliant people have uh, used some of the newer methods uh, that I think you might be familiar with, Gil, to take large data sets and uh, understand what the underlying uh, components of those data sets are. These very big data sort of analyses that look at a huge matrix of data and say, what are the eigenvalues of this matrix? What are the, you know, what are the major th ways that things are being introduced here? And the amazing thing is you can take like all of the cancer sequencing that's been taken, put it into a huge uh, deconvolution algorithm yeah. and figure out, oh, here's a pattern of mutation that we can ascribe to UV radiation. And here's another pattern of mutation, and we can ascribe that to smoking. And here's another pattern of mutation, and we can ascribe that to just the aging process. Um, mm. And so by taking the, this kind of large-scale data and deconvolving all of these different patterns, then we can understand the underlying mutational things that happen that lead to cancer. But that is, as I said, that's only half of the process because that's how the mutations appear. Yep it's not necessarily how they get selected. And that's where what we've been doing adds on to it. And then the second half of your question was, uh, so all of those environmental factors make a difference. And the question is, can diet change uh, your uh, chances of cancer? And the answer is absolutely, and in two ways. One, uh, you have to always be careful not to eat carcinogens, right? right? Yeah. So eating things that might cause cancer and Usually, you know, you have to look on the internet to sort of figure some of these things out. Um, you know, you definitely want to avoid uh, eating carcinogens. So that's very related to the mutation process. Most carcinogens are carcinogens because they lead to mutations. Yeah. And those mutations then randomly can occasionally cause cancer. Uh, but then the other point is that um, it's also important to keep your uh, weight in the sort of healthy um, range. And that is for some somewhat different reasons. It doesn't appear that being overweight increases your mutation rate, but it seems to just create an environment in which it is a lot easier for these bad mutations to survive and replicate. And so you need to keep your body uh, fit. 
Uh, and uh, that involves um, making sure that you don't um, eat too much and that you eat well. Right. Yeah. I know that you are, you are dealing with large data sets also, Jeff. So these mutations, are they totally random or is there some kind of time uh, related uh, relationships between them? What I mean is, you know, suppose we see mutation X, could we predict what, you know, mutation X prime is likely to be after we see mutation X? It's a brilliant question. And that's exactly something that my lab is working on right now is that predict uh, that prediction yes. problem. Uh, and we're interested in it more than just as a prediction problem. Uh, there are approaches you could use that we aren't using that really do sort of this big data analysis to try to provide that prediction. And other people have done that. What I've been focusing on is that prediction problem, but in a more mechanistic sense. So since I'm interested in the evolution of cancer and sort of giving a mechanistic description of how it happens, like this mutation happens, and then what state are we in? And then this mutation happens, and then what state we're in. What I've been doing is actually working with the people in my group. I have a bunch of great people who I work with. Uh, and what we've been doing is uh, coming up with ways to predict how the selection coefficient that we discussed earlier, how um, whether or not that mutation goes on to survive and propagate and produce a cancer, how that changes in the context of the other somatic mutations that happen. So that's that X and X prime that you described. And so there's sort of, so there's, there's two different ways the mutation can affect what's going on. One is some mutations actually cause the mutation rate to rise. So if you mutate uh, part of the cellular proteins that are responsible for copying the DNA, they tend to make more mistakes. Yeah. So one way you can increase your chances of cancer might be to mutate one of, the, one of those. The other way is you might mutate a gene that once it's mutated, another mutation suddenly is much more likely to lead to cancer than if that first one wasn't. And the classic example of this uh, is, uh, it's not always applicable, but in a general sense, it's a good model for what's going on, is the idea that you need to have both a tumor suppressor and a oncogene mutated in order to get a cancer. Now it's more complicated than that, and there's certainly more numbers of genes that get mutated than two in many cancers. But the general principle is you need to have the cell, two things need to happen. The cell needs to decide to replicate more quickly and uh, overabundantly. Uh, and that's usually what happens when you get an oncogene mutation. Yeah. And secondly, the cell's surveillance system needs to not pick up that this cell is not behaving well and decide to basically send it into apoptosis or some other cell, cell death process. And that's usually what's called a tumor suppressor that detects that the cell isn't well, doing well. So typically what people think happens is that the tumor suppressor gets knocked out first. So it can't sense that it's over uh, producing cells. And then the oncogene gets hit second. And if that happens in that order, then you can imagine, you know, your brakes are off and your accelerator is down to 100 percent. And that cell is often running into cancer. Right, uh, right. Yeah, so there are very interesting applications here of artificial intelligence as well, right? So to the extent that you have large data sets and you have information on outcomes and, and really a sort of a historical progression um, within individuals, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you, your lab is doing some of this, right? So unsupervised machine learning clustering of that data and then, um, you know, maybe making some predictions as to what is likely to happen uh, post-diagnosis for a patient, things like that, I, I believe uh, should be possible, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And there are many uh, people who, who think that that's a, definitely a, a way that we should move forward with this kind of research. I'm very interested in comparing those kinds of approaches to approaches that, uh, that have this mechanistic side to them yeah. too. Like for yeah. instance, if I can calculate that selection coefficient, maybe we can put the selection coefficients into the, um, to the AI. And would that help because now, because of the strength of the mechanistic model actually contributing to the knowledge that it actually uh, contributes. So uh, uh, this is one of the major questions in AI is like, you know, how much can you put into the AI from your general knowledge and how much do you want to just throw a bunch of data into a big matrix and then figure out what it says? Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, one approach that we use in uh, in healthcare, you know, in more kind of uh, provider arena is what's called reinforcement learning. So you have a lot of data coming out of uh, EMR systems and you can make some predictions uh, in, uh, you know, disease risk like uh, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, COPD, and, um, you know, you could be right 85% of the time, uh, but other 15% of the time you are wrong. And there are two types of reinforcement learning uh, that could happen. You know, these models could be constructed to be learning models, meaning it can make a prediction, it gets some new data, it compares its predictions to the new data or outcomes, I should say, and then it can self-adjust uh, and, and improve. Uh, in some settings, we actually use um, uh, human feedback, uh, meaning the physician would say, you know, it, it is good in 85% of these cases, but not so good in 15% of these cases, uh, in which case, um, again, the machine could use that type of uh, feedback mechanism uh, to get better. And, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know much about it, Jeff, but this process that you are, you are on seems like there could be a lot of potential for that type of learning, learning systems. Absolutely. And another way that, uh, that along those same lines that we're looking into is, uh, in general, for patient care, the sort of traditional approach, um, and I, I know this is sort of an oversimplification, but the traditional approach towards most therapies is you diagnose the disease, and then you have a treatment regimen based yeah. on that diagnosis. And especially for cancer, where the enemy is this evolving mm. beast and not, uh, not a fixed entity that you, you know, know exactly what it is and you just need to apply this particular therapy in the right way. Uh, it's really important for us to sort of break that mold of thinking of things. Like we have this and therefore we do this is probably not the best way to think about it. The best way is probably much like you described to think about it as a process and to update your knowledge about the state the patient is in continuously with every piece of information. And you can do that via sort of an AI approach where you have a big AI machine that takes the new information in and says, okay, what is our prognosis now? What is our prognosis now? That's one thing that can help you determine like the aggressiveness of therapy that you might want to apply yeah. to a person. Additionally, if you can basically get a picture of that underlying evolutionary uh, trajectory that can be followed. This is, again, is the X to X prime to X prime prime, which mutations happen first, second, third, then somehow, hopefully we can actually predict where in that evolutionary trajectory uh, a patient may go based on our previous experiences with other patients that have gone through one of these trajectories. And what that promises to allow us to do is to do something which is really exciting to me, which is to possibly uh, treat before the next yeah. mutation happens, you know, so that we can really corner the cancer 
and kill off the resistance before it happens when it's still in a very small number of cells and where it can't get the X prime prime mutation that that deals with the resistance to the cancer. So in other words, we don't want to, you know, treat you with a single agent, you know, have the cancer go down and then six months later, have it come back. You have full tumors again, treat you with a single agent and have that same sort of repeating scenario come around. What we really want to do is find a way so that we can treat you and at the same time treat you for the next mutation. And then hopefully we can eliminate right, cancer. Right, yeah. Uh, exciting, exciting stuff. So this is the ultimate in personalized medicine, right? Every cancer is different. Every individual's cancer is different is, is what, what you're demonstrating. And then every individual's evolution uh, of that cancer is different. So unless you have a truly personalized view uh, to an individual, you won't be able to optimize treatment regimens. This is uh, what you're proving, right? Yeah, I, I had the opportunity to write a, an article about uh, about this in uh, the Scientific in Scientific American in April yeah. of 2018. Uh, the article was called "The Cancer Tree," but one of my favorite parts of it is right at the end, where I say that uh, many oncologists may not realize this now, but I think that all oncologists in 20 years are going to be evolutionary <laughs> biologists. They may not even realize it in 20 years, but that's what they're going to be doing, <laughs> is they're going to be thinking about this, uh, can these cancers as evolving creatures and uh, over time, you know, modifying their treatment in accordance with how those uh, cancers themselves right, are evolving. Right. Yeah, so I want to shift gears to your, uh, your other, uh, one of the other interests, uh, which is biostatistical analysis for nonlinear mathematical models. Uh, especially in the in the case of disease emergence and spread, um, uh, I um, I read something, Jeff. Uh, you did some work um, in the uh, the plagues in India, right? In the colonial India, hundred years ago. Yeah, that's right. That was a really yeah. Interesting yeah. Could you project. talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this was a wonderful case where um, a graduate student came with me with the idea, you know, this is not my idea, the graduate student, a uh, brilliant guy, Joe Lunard, uh, came by and basically said, hey, um, I'm interested in doing this project. And I said, oh, I'd love to do that one. We were sort of thinking about yeah. doing a project together um, just for publication reasons. Um, and, and I just uh, was very fascinated by this project. And what he had done was he had looked through and found these old records from the early, uh, from the early 1900s uh, about... Uh, the British colonial record keeping of the plague that struck through India, actually starting in the in the late, late 1800s and continuing through uh, the first two decades or so of uh, yeah. the 1900s. And he showed me some of these images of the of the books that had been published with all this data. And it was amazing. It was the kind of it's the kind of thing I'm like today. I'm like, this is big data, right? <laughs> yeah. They had big data because the, they were such good record keepers. They had every, you know, the number of people who died every every month in every city, the number of rats they found in every part of each city. <laughs> you know, it was just amazing how much data they collected. And they didn't have very sophisticated ways of analyzing that data. You know, largely they would just tabulate it and they would you know make tables and then they would bold the parts where it went up and down uh, seasonally and then you could sort of see you know the seasonal seasonality but it was very empirical no theory to it whatsoever but uh, upon seeing this incredible trove of data i thought gosh you know this is the kind of data we wish we had 
for many epidemics that are occurring now yeah. and that are really important. Why don't we do what we do now with this kind of data uh, and analyze it with a model to try to understand how this epidemic uh, happened the way it did? So why was what was what was our question? Why did we need to ask that? The, the thing that was bizarre about the epidemic, uh, as a plague epidemic goes, is that um, uh, that uh, as time went on, what you would see are these seasonal fluctuations in the in the plague. And that's not so unusual. Uh, you know, colds have seasonality. The yeah. flu has seasonality. But what was interesting is the plague would always start and you would have these big fluctuations. And then year after year, the fluctuations would diminish and diminish until it went away, kind of of its own accord. And it was curious why it was going away, because the humans who are suffering from the plague are not actually a vector for the continuation of the plague. Humans are a dead end for the right. Yersinia pestis bug because uh, we don't transmit it to anyone else. So it's not like humans were getting resistance. It's not like the bugs were adapting to humans. Like, so why was it going away? And it turned out, and fortunately, all the records had been taken for this. And in fact, the British had figured this out by their sort of enormous record keeping and sort of intuitive yeah. thinking. They basically figured this out. And I mean, it was very speculative to them, not nearly as speculative as our results after doing the model. But but they speculated that what was probably happening was that the rats were gaining resistance over time. In other words, they yeah. were evolving an ability to tolerate this Yersinia pestis bug. And then as they got more and more resistant, the bug wasn't able to infect it as the rats as much. And when the bug wasn't able to infect the rats as much, it didn't infect the fleas as much. When the fleas weren't infected as much, then when the rats died, there weren't as many fleas that came out and infected humans. And so this was the process that they hypothesized was doing it, but they had no way of like testing it. And so what we did in that study was to actually write a model that incorporated all of these different factors, the temperature, the population size, the number of rats, the number of fleas, the way the fleas forage on rats and humans, uh, the fleas response to temperature, their survival time due to temperature, which is what caused that seasonality. Amazingly, it's like how fleas are, how yeah. the fleas were surviving. So, so in the context of we are in, so data is the key there, right? So in the context of COVID now, um, and, you know, uh, you have, uh, you know, talked about this uh, problem of uh, point estimates using set of factors, uh, and we may not have had all the factors, let alone all the data on those factors, and we come up with a forecast, and those point estimate forecasts, and I was uh, just, uh, you know, looking at the COVID-19 forecast, um, they have a point estimate forecast, but then they put a huge uncertainty band around that. Uh, so, so two problems. Uh, point estimates are not necessarily that useful, but then if you put a very large uncertainty band around that point estimate, that also not necessarily that useful from a decision-making perspective, right? Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. And, and I think the thing to focus on is exactly the last thing you mentioned, which is that what you want to use these kinds of models for is for decision-making. And in the context of decision-making, what's important is not so much having an accurate forecast in the sense of knowing exactly what's going to happen next, but rather knowing what is the effect of doing X gonna be and what is the effect of doing Y gonna be. And if I can only do one or the other, which one should I do? That's where the, the utility of most of this modeling comes in. 
not so much in right. saying where it's going to be, because, of course, we're all doing things constantly. And human behavior is one of the hardest things to say anything about. We're all doing things constantly that are going to violate any forecast that we predict. There are going to be other interventions beyond the ones we think about that are going to change the forecast. So the important thing is, from our standpoint, is to say, well, what if we do this or don't do this? Does it help or does it just hurt or does it do nothing? And understanding the degree to which a particular intervention helps or hurts or does nothing is what we really hope to get out of most of this modeling. And that gets around this issue of, as you described completely accurately, the point estimate sort of is not so important. What's important is the comparison of the point estimate under one intervention versus another intervention. And then additionally, the uncertainty is not usually so important because usually that uncertainty is you know, a very wide prediction about what exactly is gonna happen. But if you look at the uncertainty in terms of if we do this intervention versus that intervention, will it be better or worse? That uncertainty is actually quite small. So it's very or, or ideally is quite small if you have a study that's doing a good job. So so that's the kind of thing that we're really hoping to get out of these predictions. And the reason why I think one shouldn't pay much attention to sometimes you hear people saying, oh, and it didn't do what all these people said. And, and the point is, for especially for epidemiologists, you know, we often are accused of saying of pronouncing doom and gloom scenarios that never arise. And the point is, <laughs> yeah. the whole point of making the model was to make sure that the doom and gloom scenario did not arise by sparking action and intervention so that it doesn't happen. So uh, you can't really post hoc evaluate, did that happen the way it was predicted? Well, of course not, because we did something about it. Uh, and this is a classic problem with sort of communication of why we do these sophisticated analyses. Uh, and, and I just hope that, uh, you know, that everyone understands that the point is to, to, to best predict what to do. It's not to make a perfect prediction about what's going to happen going into the future. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting uh, for me also, Jeff. So it's a subtle point. Um, the way that you're looking at it is exactly the, the, the right way, in my view. And we suffer from this in, you know, in finance and economics and other areas too. And that is you can get an outcome prediction or forecast. And then you say you do an optimistic and pessimistic scenarios on the outcome. But what's important is to really understand the uncertainties of the inputs. Uh -huh. And, you know, it, it just, it, it just, um, it, it is subtle and, but it's missed um, in many domains, actually. So, so the, the real question we want to ask is, number one, what are the uncertainties and the factors that go into the model? And then what influence those factors have in the outcomes. Just doing scenario analysis on the outcomes won't won't give us those insights, right? Yeah. So it's That's, yeah. How yeah. you phrase the problem is really really key. So I've been doing a lot of um, you know the statistical field where you do a lot of this uncertainty on these inputs and, and stuff like that. It, most of those models are Bayesian models, and I do a lot of Bayesian work with this. Uh, uh, infectious disease prediction, where what we do yes. is uh, characterize explicitly the uncertainty on every input and then sample from the full diversity of what those inputs could be to make a prediction for the output. And just like you described uh, earlier, what you often get is the, are these very wide confidence intervals when you incorporate all of the uncertainties coming in. But again, yeah. just like also just like you described, uh, if you ask as the output a really focused question, as opposed to just a general prediction, like what's gonna happen. You can actually yeah. get often a very clear answer 
despite all that uncertainty, because that very focused thing may be, you know, very distinct and it may not matter that much what the uncertainty on many of these other things are. Like if you're asking the question, you know, how much is, uh, uh, is a lockdown going to help or something like that? You know, but, we might not know how much disease there's going to be two months from now, but we can say something about the ratio of disease uh, compared to not disease if you have this lockdown in operation preventing people from transmitting. Right, right. And so some of the input factors have uncertainty, but we cannot really do anything about it. Uh, but some of the factors could be influenceable. So the real question is, uh, what could we do? And if we were to do something, what the expected net impact of that, that on the outcomes uh, would be? And, and those questions are more difficult to, difficult to answer, right? It's not a sort of a, a pure data science problem. Uh, it's more of a decision problem. And like you say, I, I don't believe we do enough of that to really influence policy. Uh, it's the way to go. And I, I think there's so many ways that it, we can use it that I think it's not as used as it could be. You know, for instance, just to give one example, uh, our, you know, when we make a, when we make congressional decisions about allocating funding, there are ways to calculate what the impacts of those are going to be in a lot of different ways. And we yeah. currently have a whole Congressional Budget Office that carefully calculates, you know, what are the net costs going to be and what are the outcomes going to be of this. Uh, but that what they don't do is do things like comparative outcome analysis of this bill to this other congressional bill. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing where you might, you know, say, oh, it might be quite illuminating to realize, like, how much we spend to avoid, you know, three deaths in this situation compared to how much we spend to avoid thousands of deaths in this other situation. In many cases, our priorities in terms of how much money we spend for the outcomes that we get may not be all that correct. So we should look at that very carefully. And I, I really don't understand, uh, you know, I understand from a practical standpoint why it isn't implemented. But I think from a, uh, from a human perspective, we really, really should be thinking about what the net impacts on everyone are of every decision we make. And that involves a pretty complex calculation, but a feasible calculation to make. Yeah, and it's a portfolio problem. And, and that is the issue, right? So um, many of these decisions or choices are interrelated choices. And in a world of you know, limited resources, it's really a resource allocation problem and a portfolio optimization problem. Uh, but I don't believe um, in the policy realm we, we think about it that way. Maybe because, well, um, the politicians have to get their their share of the money uh, in the bill, so you know that that introduces a, a level of uncertainty into it. Um, but also, uh, maybe the way that we do this analysis is really in a segmented way, right? Um, you know, we kind of divvy up um, the the resources into buckets. And then we attempt a sort of a, a optimization problem within those buckets that is never going to be globally optimum. So that is that is the that is a problem, I think. Yeah, it's very hard, I think, uh, for any group to come up with like a, a, just a culture of using these kinds of ways to answer questions. But I think that you find uh, you would know more than me, but I think that you find in the corporate world, for instance, when. When uh, when a company comes up with a culture of using these kinds of like very rational decision making approaches, as opposed to sort of the gut feeling of the CEO, uh, I think companies do a lot better. <laughs> yeah, they they, they do. Uh, but just like the 
the policy realm and in the government, uh, there are there are forces in large corporations too, Jeff. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> that Guaranteed. Love that. <laughs> Guaranteed. So, uh, uh, so what's your general sense of where we are in terms of COVID? I know that. Um, we seem to have gotten it flattened out, at least in the tri-state area. I don't know about the rest of the country, um, and, but we see a rapid acceleration of infected cases uh, in some of the developing countries like India. So what, what is your sense where we are and what we could be doing? Well, it, it's, it, it's actually a very complicated time right now to communicate a good public health message, I think, compared to early on in the epidemic, where I think we actually communicated, epidemiologists did, and actually policymakers as well, communicated a very clear message that worked effectively. And that was that this is sort of an exponentially increasing disease, and that if we don't act rapidly and strongly, we're going to have this enormous wave of crushing uh, hospital cases, cases that will overwhelm our hospital system. And that was definitely true. Um, and fortunately, we did act. And that has stopped that sort of phase of the epidemic. But now we've moved on to into another phase, which is, a, as I said, really challenging to describe, because yeah. what is happening now is we're relaxing some of the restrictions. And that may be the right decision, because some of those restrictions may be more than we actually need to suppress this disease to a large degree. Uh, but we don't really know exactly what level of restriction relaxation we can do. And we also don't know what human behavior is going to be going forward. <laughs> so those two things make it very uncertain in terms of making any kind of prediction about what's going to happen going forward. So what's really important to understand is more, in my view, what are the sort of things that can happen and how would they happen and that kind of thing rather than making an explicit prediction. So the main thing to, that I should make clear is it does not look from any of the data that we have now like yeah. any population on Earth is at this herd immunity level, right, which would ensure us that, oh, we can just sort of go back to normal business because most people are immune and it's not going to spread very much because of that. So yeah. since we're not at a herd immunity level, although we don't know what level we're at, there's very little likelihood we're anywhere near a herd immunity level uh, anywhere. Uh, that means that, in fact, you know, we're not in some kind of better situation than we were before we had all of these uh, economic lockdowns. The main thing that's different is that people have adopted different behaviors. And what that means is everyone should be aware that the, that adopting those different behaviors is what's keeping it stable right now. Right. And that we need to be very, uh, very careful to maintain those behaviors in order to not lead to a resurgence. And I think from a from to understand what's happening in different areas like, you know, India uh, came a bit late in to, into the epidemic. And so for that reason, it sort of is in a situation where uh, I think it's struggling a little bit with the public messaging because it seemed like they were, you know, not struck so badly by it. Right. So then it's <laughs> not so bad here. Right. But this this virus does not discriminate based on nationality, by race, by any criterion. Right. There is no magic solution here. It is going to strike everywhere if we allow it to. It just is a matter of time where it goes and, and how it spreads. So right. um, so we need to be very, very uh, vigilant in thinking about where and when things are go are, are going to go bad. And we need to um, be very active in doing our surveillance and contact tracing and all of the things that everyone is talking about. 
because we're no nowhere is is this disease uh, eliminated, and it is a devastating disease, especially for our elderly and infirm populations. Right, right, yeah. Like you say, the natural herd immunity. Um, my understanding is that you have to get up to sixty-five, seventy percent of infection rate uh, to get anywhere, anywhere close to that. Uh, the other complication here is testing, right? Um, and so, you know, some of the antibody tests uh, that are out there, I took one actually yesterday, uh, came in negative, uh, but it doesn't really tell us much because at 90% sensitivity and, you know, 90-95% specificity, uh, a positive test basically says for a random individual, it's a 50-50 uh, split uh, for for an individual, so that is not sufficiently robust to make any policy to let people back into workplaces, and so unless we have tests that is you know way up in the high up in the nineties, both in terms of sensitivity and specificity, we won't be able to use that in any any robust fashion, and so like you say. Um, yeah, I mean, we are through phase one, but phase two may look uh, very similar to phase one in many respects, yeah. unless we get a vaccine. Yeah, it's going to, I think it's going to increase. And in, what's going to happen is we'll have, I think we'll have resurgences in places, which will then make people more attentive and then it will go down and then people will think, oh, it's safe now. And then, you know, we're going to have this sort of repeated sort of scenario going on of, 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 you know, clashing desires to keep our economy open and we need that for various reasons but at the same time to keep people safe and every time it becomes a sort of seeming safer people are going to say we should reopen the economy and every time the virus resurges we're we're going to want to be safer again so uh you know how you make this decision about what to do uh, over time is a very difficult thing to to describe uh, i just think we need to be vigilant and we need to be very conscientious about uh, the effect of this disease on others, because it is a disease where uh, some some segments of our population are much less susceptible than others. And uh, that doesn't mean you aren't at risk. So yeah. so what, what what causes risk for any of us causes risk for all of us. But at the same time, there is this sense where some people will feel at liberty when they shouldn't because it is so deadly to others. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, the the mask policy uh, is sometimes misunderstood. Um, you know, unless you have an N95 uh, type mask, it's not really going to prevent the virus to, to, to pass through. Uh, but it does help if you are sick and, and there is asymptomatic transmission here too. If you're sick, uh, it helps to reduce uh, possible transmission to others. So, you know, it, it is um, a set of things that people could do, it's not going to be perfect. Um, and, and more importantly, this is a modeling problem also, Jeff. I think that uh, come fall and winter, uh, we could get a reemergence. And there, there, there's some talk about different strains of this virus, um, some more potent than others. I don't know if, I don't know if that is true or not. Um, and then there is mutations here too, right? That could complicate matters uh, come this winter. Yeah, it's entirely possible that a strain could arise that has different properties from the other uh, viruses that are uh, about out there. 
but I would just say that being an evolutionary biologist is kind of thing that I would naturally look for. Um, yeah. And it's what I, what I can say is def- definitely true is that, first of all, it's pretty hard to see that. It usually takes a long time for us to really know that that's true. Um, secondly, uh, none of the data right now really argues that there is any differences among strains. Now, you can you can sort of construct a scenario by looking at it and saying, oh, look, this strain grew a whole lot compared to others. But there are so many demographic processes, so many super spreader events, you know, bottlenecks, all kinds of things that can happen that lead to that same pattern that it yeah. is really, very difficult to come up with any kind of statement as an epidemic is growing, that there are these new mutations that are causing different phenotypes, different uh, degrees of disease spread and emergence. And also in different you know, nationalities and stuff, there are different human behaviors, et cetera. So when you look in a geographic space, you also can't sort of interpret things that way. So I think in general, it's best to just assume that this virus is going through exponential growth, that every virus that is being produced is either, you know, either has a lethal mutation and dies or is um, remarkably well adapted to human infection. Because what's, what is clear is that this virus came on very quickly from the immediate time that it transferred to humans and immediately started spreading incredibly well. So it was already a really successful virus at infecting us. So it's not clear that there's a lot of room for it to sort of improve, even though you would yeah. think that would be the case. Uh, the fact is that you have to be pretty well pre-adapted to, do, to, uh, to undergo that zoonotic event and have it lead to disease in humans. I mean, we've seen some other cases where, you know, it's been harder for the virus to lead to disease. Uh, um, you know, uh, MERS is a good example, which is a very deadly disease, far more deadly than COVID, but it just doesn't seem to transmit among humans in the same way that COVID does, for instance, or even that SARS did. Yeah, and the, and the impact of temperature and humidity on spread is also very, uh, it's very unclear, right, the data? Yeah, it's really unclear. So I have not been very persuaded that, in fact, yeah, we may well see a temperature effect. Um, and we, ha- we do see temperature effects with regard to the common colds, the beta coronaviruses, and also uh, with regard to the flu. So there's a lot of reason to think there might be a temperature effect. But we shouldn't just like think, oh, well, our worry is in the fall. My worry about saying our worry is in the fall is that it's quite clear that uh, that in India, where it's quite warm, <laughs> this thing is spreading tremendously well. And in Brazil, right. where it's uh, where it was, they're going through winter now, but it's spreading quite well. So we don't see differences really by weather that are very large with this disease so far. So the empirical data for this particular disease does not say that there's a big difference. And in fact, there's a it's misleading to be thinking about the common cold and the flu and saying, well, they have the seasonality, so probably we'll have a seasonality here. The one example we have is this happened um, back with the 1918 flu, where there was a first wave and then the second wave was even worse when winter came. Um, but right. it's not exactly clear, uh, again, whether that had to do with, you know, the, the way we intervened when it first came and then relaxed and then didn't catch up when it came back again. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of human behavior questions that we need to work out before we can really conclude that. And the the last thing that I really want to point out about the seasonality is that, uh, like, um, you know, going back to that India plague study that I showed you, there was this yes. tremendous seasonality in that plague. That was driven by the fact of how the fleas die in cold or warm weather, right? So it had nothing to do really with Yersinia pestis. Mm. Um, and in fact, there was this amazing example where, 
um, in one of the uh, in one of the uh, cities, the the epidemic started out of phase, meaning it didn't it started in the wrong time of the year. And yeah. you still saw a huge jump, a huge bump of infections when it started out of phase. And then it sort of came into phase over time. The, mm. And the point being that what causes the seasonality is a lot of different effects that mean that a disease comes through, you know, causes a lot of mortality, leads to a certain amount of resistance, et cetera, goes back down, then the mortality goes down, there's less resistance, then there's more transmission. So what you can get are these sort of phased, you know, increases and decreases that are just reinforced a little bit by something about the temperature or weather that mean you get these remarkably strong seasonalities. In other words, the seasonal it isn't that the seasonality prevents and then lets the disease happen. It's just that the seasonality is sort of pushed on the disease, even by a little bit of what's called forcing. Um, yeah. And you can see this phenomenon, not just in disease, but in a lot of different areas where you can have small effects that can lead to a forcing as long as those small effects are regular over a period of time. Yeah, I think people were just a bit too optimistic uh, when we saw Australia, New Zealand, um, you know, when Western Europe and North, North America took off, uh, we didn't see that much of an impact in Australia, New Zealand. So people were optimistic about the weather-related effect, uh, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, India is really taking off now. So, um, you know, it seems unlikely it has such a big effect. Yeah, I, I, I feel strongly that it's probably a seasonally forced phenomenon uh, in, in many of the cases that we know that have disease being very seasonal rather than a situation where really the disease can't spread off of season. It's just that, uh, you know, we become slightly immune, there's a slightly less of a disease that, you know, so it ends up being forced into this pattern as opposed to being uh, a situation where the disease can't spread in that particular season. Right, right. Yeah, I want to close with, uh, you have a podcast out of uh, Yale also, right? I do. Um, yeah. yeah. So Talk I've really about that. doing the podcasts. Um, uh, uh, my pod, the podcast that I run is on a very, very specific topic, but really interesting topic. I would say it's like one of the only topics where I feel like the, sci- the, the, wor- the work that I'm doing, the science that I'm doing is, uh, is, is like science fiction. Even to me, when I, when I meet with my <laughs> colleagues, I'm like, are we really doing this? It's pretty crazy. So I have a yeah. podcast and it's a, it's the podcast is about the topic of re-engineering the ribosome. That's the, you know, the protein factory within your cell to create yeah. a fundamentally new form of chemical matter. So we're trying oh, to wow. take the actual ribosome of the cell and engineering it so it's a slightly different shape in various ways so that instead of putting amino acids together, to make proteins, we're yeah. trying to take those amino acids uh, and, and put them in in modified form or take completely other chemistry that's not an amino acid, uh, you know, alkenes or alkanes or some other kind of chemical piece and have the ribosome put it together uh, in a templated way according to what the DNA says. And the advantage of that is we don't really have any way in industrial chemistry of making a very seriously temp- templated chemistry. So if we want to make, you know, one thing and then the next thing and the next thing, there's sort of various ways you can do it, but there's a lot of problems with trying to make a very specific sequence. You can usually make repeating patterns of a certain t- kind or you can make 
you know, a short sequence that has a certain certain thing, but to make a long, very specific polymer, we don't have any way to do that. But nature has designed that in the ribosome. So mm. can we actually modify that? And we've already shown that we can incorporate, you know, different uh, amino acids, um, some different chemical structures and in, into um, into proteins. And so we just need to try to make this process more processive. Uh, the ribosome actually create these things on as long strings as opposed to just single in, you know, introductions of, of novel chemistry. And uh, that's what we're working on. And the potential yeah. here is enormous because if you can create these designer chemicals, so, so as, as one might say, they might have tremendously different properties from the kinds of matter that we typically see. So the potential to develop a, a new Kevlar or uh, a new uh, drug that um, and a new antibiotic that a, that a bug can't break down because it's using L amino acids instead of R amino acids. Like there's so many, so much potential here to do yeah. really outstanding science. Uh, and I'm just blown away every time I think about it. So I have been playing largely I, I don't have a very big role in the particular science that's going on. A lot of what I'm doing are kind of outreach kind of work, like this podcast that uh, that I host, where I interview scientists who are working on this. And I think it sort of helps me a little bit to have this outside perspective and just be fascinated by what's going on um, in those uh, in those studies. So the other role I play in that science is to sort of facilitate the communication from discipline to discipline, because it's a multiple, dis multiple disciplinary uh, research that's uh, funded very fortunately, we're very pleased to have been funded by the NSF chemistry division, which understands that um, to do this new chemistry, we need people who are involved in biology, involved in material science, science um, and, and engineers and all these different people who need to be there in order to actually make this actually work. Yeah, it's fascinating research. I, I suppose it's in the research stage now, right? Um, we are not to a point that you can think about scale up and actual production. Uh, that's true. It's totally in the research stage now and scale up and actual production are a major problem, but it's not something that I would say we or our large collaboration is not already thinking about. So for instance, we have material scientists uh, on who are, uh, you know, integrated into the research team. And we have uh, collaborations with industrial partners who see the promise in this particular technology and are already thinking about how they could implement it in a way that would allow them to manufacture sufficient quantities of this, these new chemistries that they could then uh, use them to create products that could uh, improve the lives of people all over the world. Yeah, so they should folks go to, to listen to the podcast. Uh, they should go to uh, gem-net.net uh, okay. slash podcast. We'll then bring them directly to the podcast page. So that's G-E-M hyphen N-E-T dot N-E-T uh, slash podcast. Uh, and then you can find there's uh, there's several podcasts you can listen to. The very first one is very short, where some uh, where a, a young woman uh, sort of interviews me, and then after that we get much more into the details of the science uh, and uh, some exciting interviews of Riju Das, who's at Stanford and has done this amazing outreach project to uh, to to people all over the world to allow them to help uh, in doing science, uh, and also Alana Shepards, who's the the principal investigator for the entire project. Uh, also, I've interviewed Omar Ad, who was a um, Agilent fellow working with us to do some of this work on the chemistry side. And uh, lastly, we have one podcast that's uh, about the kind of work uh, that uh, that I was doing, building up uh, 
uh, infrastructure for the teamwork that we're doing across many institutions. That sounds great. Yeah, you're doing some excellent work at Yale. And uh... this is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.